Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Rosanna Komisidu, a researcher who fell into the implementation science after seeing the gap between research and practice in schools firsthand. It is an area that I feel schools are not as aware of as they should be, and I was really excited when Rosanna agreed to talk with me. I see implementation science as the glue that can ensure great ideas stick and bad ideas shift. In our conversation, she gives an overview of what things schools should consider before implementing something, how leaders can support the process, and what things to avoid. Here is my conversation with Dr. Rosanna Kamasidu. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Rosanna Komisidu, an implementation scientist and consultant. Rosanna, can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you're in today? Yes. Uh, hi, Brendan. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, as you said, I am an implementation scientist and a consultant. Um, I began my educational journey in psychology and then went into child development which eventually led me to a PhD in speech-language pathology at the University of Kansas in the United States. Uh, And I think um, it is then, especially during my dissertation phase, that everything kind of changed for me because I was coming from a theoretical experimental background. I did also work in intervention, um, but it was my dissertation. I always like to say that it forced me out of my research bubble and took mm. me to the real world and the reality of educational practice. Um, as I was recruiting children with dyslexia for my study, I had opportunities to interact with teachers, uh, families, and the students themselves. And I really saw the gap between research and practice and how research doesn't always end up uh, in routine practice, especially in schools, and what that means for teachers. Um, not being able to do what they do best, and that is teach students, uh, for families being left frustrated and worried about their children, and children themselves being, for example, in fourth grade and not being able to read. Um, so that whole experience was such uh, an eye-opening one for me, and it really shifted my attention. I wanted to learn more about the gap between research and practice, what, uh, what explains it, and how we can solve it so we can ensure that quality program from research evidence-based program end up in school and they are actually being used and maintained over time to have the impact that we want them to have. Uh, Right after my PhD, I joined the NJ Institute of Health Professions uh, as a postdoc fellow and a project manager at the Speech and Language Literacy Lab working with Dr. Tiffany Hogan. And during my four-year fellowship, I had the opportunity to learn about implementation science. I never heard of implementation science before and Mm. really think how we can bring it into the work that we do with schools. So I had different types of uh, um, opportunities to apply implementation science with my amazing collaborators, especially 
of Dr. Tiffany Hogan. Uh, we did work in early screening, early intervention. We did work in early childhood uh, and interprofessional collaboration. But I also think that time was perfect for me during my fellowship because those same discussions about the gap between research and practice and what can we do about it were happening in the education field and in the field of communication science and disorders. Um, yeah. I was just going to um, kind of backtrack a little bit because um, I know that we're really going to dig into the, the, the whole implementation process, um, but, right. I, but I'm really interested as well in just in terms of your, your own um, experience at school. Did you come across some of these difficulties as well or, you know, what was your own experience like? Yes, uh, especially as I said, uh, right before my fellowship, when I was conducting my dissertation, I was, you know, after talking to teachers and families, I was seeing that programs that we know that work and can help children acquire basic reading skills were not implemented or when they were, they were not uh, implemented well. So they were not producing the outcomes that we will expect them to. Um, but there was also, um, there were also a lot of other things happening. You would have teachers who wouldn't know what dyslexia is, what it looks like, and what the needs of the students are. Um, you would have uh, researchers and practitioners not collaborating enough to solve some of those real problems. So the barriers that we see affecting the gap between uh, research and practice were really in front of me when I was approaching schools and families uh, for my study. And then we saw the same things happening when we started working with schools in Boston, in the greater Boston area, uh, to support their implementation of different uh, practices. Uh, those same barriers were have, uh, there as well. Um, limited knowledge, um, a lot of other problems with resources and times, which uh, you probably have seen in your own uh, setting, uh, and um, different other things are coming together to make it even harder for something to be implemented uh, and sustained uh, in practice. And I think one thing that we don't talk enough uh, about is that research oftentimes doesn't reflect the realities of practice. The way that research mm. is designed, if you think how effectiveness studies, for example, are being uh, conducted, um, they uh, are created, programs are created in perfect condition uh, because they have to. We have to uh, know whether treatment works or whether it doesn't. Uh, yeah. But when it's time to take that program and put it into practice, into that complex setting of a school, then mm. that's where the breakdown starts happening. So I think we also have to think about how research can fit uh, into a routine setting. Yeah, really good point there. And um, I, I like the fact that you touched on how a lot of the times, you know, we, we look at the research as like the gold standard, but right, you've all, you, right. you know, you, you've, you've really pointed out there how while there's a lot of things that we can learn from it, it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean it's going to immediately transfer over to what happens in that complex classroom. Right, exactly. And we have to look at the research. We have to look at the evidence. As I said, if we need to know if, an, if a treatment works doesn't and how it works. We have to look at the mechanisms behind it and, and the evidence and the whole process that was set for that evidence to happen. However, the context matters as well and how yeah. practices are being implemented every day matter. And for me, I see this relationship as bi-directional. As we want research to inform practice, we need to allow practice to inform research. So eventually we create programs that are of high, the highest quality, but also they can fit into that practice. Yeah, yeah, cool. 
So I just want to make sure that we've got a shared understanding of what implementation science actually is. I'm sure for a lot of my listeners, uh, you know, who are educators and, and teachers, they might not have really heard about really what heard. implementation science is. Yeah, so implementation science, if I go with the formal definition, is the study of methods to help us put an evidence-based program into routine practice. So how do we do that for something to be used by the people in a context and benefit students or other uh, types of population? So you have, for example, a literacy program, it is evidence-based. So implementation science helps us create a structure and a process that will uh, allow it that will allow the program to come into uh, practice and being used by teachers and benefit students. Um, and uh, it is very important to think about things like implementation science because in education, uh, like other fields like healthcare or social welfare, we have an implementation problem. Uh, so we need uh, approaches and frameworks and tools to help us create a structure that will allow us for something to come into routine practice. And you, schools implement, you implement all the time. You implement mm -hmm. before researchers think about implementation. But I think the yeah. value that implementation science brings in is that structure and that rigorous process that it can set uh, into place for something to be used and maintained over time. Yeah, and so what sort of things do implementation scientists do to approach the challenge of implementing evidence-based practices in an educational setting? Well, we always begin by sitting down with people in that educational setting and understanding the need, understanding the problem. Every school is different uh, yeah. uh, and every school has different strengths and weaknesses. So the very first step in any good implementation work is to understand the need, understand the gap and understand what um, makes that gap happen. What are the barriers in that context that prevent people, teachers, administrators, use a program and uh, maintain it over time, but also understand what good things you have in place because schools also have great things in place, different resources, uh, systems in place that support implementation and that we could leverage. And most importantly, people, people are assets. So using local knowledge to ensure that what we're bringing fits and is um, satisfactory and is acceptable by the people who are using it. Uh, once we have a great understanding of what's happening, what's there, what's not there, how things are working, uh, we, with the people, we work to set up an implementation plan. So a very detailed roadmap of things that we need to plan ahead of time before implementation in terms of resources, systems that need to be put in place, training, which is very important to help people understand about, for example, literacy, language development, the different profiles that we see in our classrooms, what that means for practice, um, the why behind everything. Uh, and once we have a very detailed plan in place, we move on through implementation, but it's not going to happen one time and that's it. We have to allow multiple cycles of implementation to happen so we can see what works, what doesn't. Uh, and improve as we go. And it's very important during that process to have a very strong evaluation plan. Data, 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 that is very important. We have to measure everything and we have to use that data to inform our decisions, anything that comes up and it's a problem and how to solve it quickly so we don't delay the process. Um, but also we have to think about long-term because it's often, uh, you know, it's common to 
concentrate on the present and forget about the future, but we're not doing this for the short term. We're doing this for the long term. So mm. everything that we do, we have to think about what's going to happen if I am in a research collaboration and that researcher brings the money in, what's going to happen when the funding is no longer there? How are we going to sustain this in our context? How are we going to ensure that we have continued education opportunities for our staff? Because knowledge changes every day. New things are coming out. So we have mm -hmm. to make sure that our teachers are aware of those, can access those. So things like that, that infrastructure that needs to stay in place so something is maintained and benefits students and entire communities eventually. Well, there's, uh, there's so much that I've just been jotting down as, as you've been going there. <laughs> and, and so some of the things that I wrote there were how how important it is to know um, what your current situation is, so where you're mm -hmm. at, um, you know, where the gap is, understanding the current needs, uh, and then working out like what actually needs to happen to, to close that gap, uh, you know, what resources you need, what systems you, you need to follow, uh, what training needs to be provided. Um, and then these ones, I think, are particular points that schools probably don't really think about. Having multiple cycles, uh, the evaluation right. plan and the long-term thinking. I think right. they're probably yes. the, the key areas that I see a lot of schools and school leaders um, not properly putting the time into thinking about. Um, right. For me, and I, I, yeah, yeah, go on. I agree. I just want to make the point that I've, from my experience, I've been in many schools where they were collected so much data, but the data were not used uh, as, as it should to mm. inform practice and decisions. Uh, especially for students who have learning disabilities. So having uh, a data collection system is important, but it's even more important to use that data collection system to inform our decisions and plan for appropriate support for our students. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, having that data inform our, our decisions, not just collecting it for the sake of collecting it. Um, you know, like one of the things for me personally was that I was, I was just chatting to you before uh, we started recording about how I first kind of came across um, the implementation science because I was you know looking at what evidence-informed practice might look like and and I thought I had mm -hmm. a pretty good understanding of it and and I even thought I was providing some really great professional learning sessions um, to staff on it as well but then I wasn't actually seeing any proper changes to their practice or improvements in student uh, learning outcomes. So it started having me question, okay, well, what's going on here? What am I missing out on? Um, and that's when I started to to understand, you know, how sometimes when we are having these conversations or you're providing um, professional development, the, the, the concepts that you're talking about, they're still abstract in the minds of, of the teachers that you're providing that learning to. And unless you really get into the nitty gritty of what it actually is and provide them with those concrete examples, even if they have the best intentions in the world, mm -hmm. it doesn't actually mean that they start to make those changes in the classroom. What have you found right. around that? that? That is true. Um, so evidence shows that one-time training, for example, that often occurs in schools, especially when we're thinking about external people coming in and training teachers doesn't work. It doesn't really translate. What works is that taking that training and making it useful and applicable for the teacher and seeing how that training matches with the classroom. One thing that I always think about is that our, you know, as I said before, our research doesn't really reflect the realities of the educational setting. Is the participants in our research are not the same participants in our classrooms. 
we have different needs um, in our class. We have different children. We have need children with different conditions at the same time. We have children who speak other languages, who speak other dialects. We have children yeah. from different cultural backgrounds. Um, so the research doesn't reflect these uh, these groups of children. So when we're trying to translate it, it, it breaks down. The message breaks down because the teacher will come and say, "Well, well, you know, I've worked with schools with." Um, uh, large multilingual populations and teachers will come, well, 80% of my classroom are bilingual children. How I'm going to support their learning? Uh, how I'm going to support their reading? Uh, and that's where the silence will come in and, you know, trying to think through that process. So we have to tie the training that we provide to the teacher's classroom and what students they see every day in front of them. The other thing that needs to happen is, you know, training doesn't solve the problem itself. It, the whole infrastructure change has to happen for something to be used and um, benefit students. And it's not going to be easy. It takes time. Implementation takes time. It takes a lot of changes. Uh, people, not everyone's going to be on board. So things have to happen through the whole system for, for this to work. Yeah, so, you know, you, you mentioned some of the barriers in. Um, you know, so say you're working with the school or, or even just providing some uh, advice to schools, how would you recommend they, they overcome some of those barriers, at the, especially at the starting that planning phase? Well, the first thing that I would say is that you need to bring your people together and have those conversations. Uh, I think we often see, and from my own experience, I often see top-down approaches where decisions are being made at the highest level and then announced in a sense to teachers and, and other staff member in uh, I've seen emails like dear teachers on this date on this month we are going to do this yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. please find more information about what that entails so that that's yeah. not gonna work because you mm -hmm. haven't involved the people that you're asking to use something you haven't involved them in those decisions so the first thing that needs to happen is if something doesn't seem to work, if we have concerns about practice, bring people together, uh, creating those spaces where people can safely share their perspectives, uh, positive feedback, negative feedback, and use that to start thinking of a plan that will allow you to solve the problem and help your students learn better. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny how you, you spoke about that because I've, I've looked at you know, a lot of research on, I'm not sure if you're aware of um, Vivian Robinson, and she's done a stuff, uh, a lot of stuff on, you know, not bypassing staff when you're making those decisions. And right. um, Prochaska and Di Clemente's um, stages of change. Mm -hmm. um, I found that really interesting and in how, you know, a lot of the times we just, like, like you said, as school leaders, we will tell teachers what they're doing um, when they're not actually even in that contemplation phase. They're, they're still exactly. in that pre-contemplation phase. Um, and what we know is if they're, they're not even considering change, it's not going to happen, is it? Right, right. And, you know, aside from the involvement of people, we have barriers like time and resources, barriers, you know, related to time and resources, excuse me. Um, and we need to think about those. If we are asking someone to do something more, we have to see what we can take away, how we can free up time, how we can bring in more resources uh, to help that, uh, that process to happen. Teachers are overwhelmed. Uh, speech yeah. language pathologists are, are overwhelmed. So asking them to do one more thing, especially when they were not part of those initial discussions, it's going to mm. create a lot of 
pension and probably it's not going to work in the long term. So we have to think through not just involving the people and listening to them, but also seeing the things that they are dealing with and how we can help them to um, to to do the to implement a program that we want them to implement uh, and uh, help them help their students uh, eventually. Yeah, such a good point there that you make about the time as well. It's probably the biggest tension that I kind of deal with is mm-hmm. that I've got you know all of this information that I want. Uh, want to be giving teachers and uh, you know different areas that I want us to be growing in, but then I look at the lack of time and and the workload and the stress that teachers are under, and so yeah, I just really struggle with knowing when to actually start things and and implement mm-hmm. and yeah, just knowing how to take those steps as we go. And one other um, point that I would. Yeah, if you allow me to make another point, um, is that when we think about change, we often think about additions. It's like what we can do, one more thing to add in our plate and to solve a problem. Sometimes less is more. So what we need to do is to see what we already have. And if there is a way to maybe just expand some part of it and help us deal with the problem. You know, I've seen a, a lot of school districts bringing programs and programs and programs in yeah. and just eventually they sit in the closet uh, or a lot of programs at the same time are being used and they generate different types of data. And then there's a confusion about what this means for a student. So when, when we're thinking about change, it doesn't necessarily mean that we need a new program, but it could mean that maybe the program that we already have is good, but it needs additional things to strengthen it and, and support students. Yeah, great point. Great point. Um, can you just provide an example of a successful implementation of an evidence-based practice uh, in educational settings? So, um, again, helping teachers understand what it actually looks like. I mean, that that is a difficult question, but I think through you know from my experiences and the work that I did, especially during my fellowship in, in Boston, um, I think I'm thinking of our process to establish screening uh, for children at risk of dyslexia and developmental language disorder. So in 2018, when I joined uh, uh, the MDG Institute of Health Professions, there was legislation coming out in most states mandating schools to set up processes where they identify early students with dyslexia Uh, and other neurodevelopmental disorders and set up evidence-based practices to support them. So uh, that was great. That that happened because parents came together uh, in in the country and demanded that things like that happen for their children uh, so they can receive the services earlier uh, than they did. Um, But as with you know, many things, when a new legislation comes in, it doesn't really necessarily comes out with, uh, comes out with uh, guidelines. So schools yeah. were left uh, on their own to figure out, okay, you know, the state is mandating us to do this, but they don't really provide details on how we're going to do it. So yeah. partnerships started being formed with researchers to think through how we can um, uh, implement uh, screening and sustain it in, in a school district, not only to meet the requirements of le- the legislation, but also uh, support teachers and, uh, and students and families. Um, so uh, different school districts uh, uh, sought help from uh, Dr. Tiffany Hogan to uh, to think through this process, and we created different partnerships. 
uh, one of the partnerships we had with was with a large school district and uh, we worked through understanding what they already had and listening to their uh, to their problems and setting up a process that um, could be mutually beneficial because you know we wanted to recruit children for our research studies they wanted to set up a screening process so was perfect. Um, we we could do that, uh, and everyone benefits from it. Um, we started with a paper version of screening, and uh, we kind of tested it in the field to see how it goes. Um, a lot of teachers liked it. Uh, some raised concerns about you know the, the the infrastructure that is needed for screening to happen uh, in a classroom. So these were group screenings; they weren't individual screenings. So you you go in a in a kindergarten classroom and you screen all children at the same time in about 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, but for that to happen, sometimes you need extra help to make sure that, you know, children are staying on task, uh, uh, yeah. the materials that are needed and, and then all the infrastructure around it for something to happen. So as we were doing it, we were, you know, evaluating how it goes and thinking through things that we could potentially change um, to make this process better. But then the pandemic happened, <laughs> so everything just uh, you know changed for us overnight. Uh, and we, in order to maintain this uh, this work, we had to pivot to online screenings and create yeah. the digital uh, formats uh, of our two screeners, our language and our reading screener, and see how that could be implemented. So we could not uh, you know go into schools. We had to reach students who were at home learning from there. Um, so we had to set up a whole process of them having um, devices that they could access the screening uh, and how the data will be collected and then analyzed and then shared back with teachers. Um, and we wrote a paper about that, uh, looking at the barriers and facilitators. So some things went great. You know, a digital screener can be easy to use, user-friendly. It can also automate the process of data collection and analysis. But then we were thinking about technology, and yeah. you know the problems that could arise uh, trying to get a student to uh, click the link and and find the screener and both do it without any issues so that yeah. that isn't it doesn't happen often. Um, yeah. And you're also thinking about the context. So the context was the pandemic. Teachers were extremely overwhelmed, uh, yeah. and any anything that you will add to their plate was just big. And the, the, we were asking a lot. But I think what made the process. Uh, move forward is that initial partnership, the quality of the partnership that was uh, formed and that foundation that allowed us to go through this process, to go through rough times together and um, try to improve this process as we go and eventually make sure that the district will be using this. Um, and right now the district are in that phase where they're thinking about uh, ownership of the process and the thinking about sustainability uh, and how the screening process ties to general education and special education. So not just about screening children, but then how do we, you know, quickly move into the next step for a student who is identified as at risk for dyslexia or developmental language disorder. So the extra support that they need, but also uh, a comprehensive evaluation that needs to happen for a child to receive a diagnosis and receive the, uh, the intervention that uh, that they need. Um, so I think the quality of the partnership, the urgency, but also always coming back to our common mission. So helping children with dyslexia and developmental language disorder, but also helping teachers to help them um, yeah. really help this process to move forward 
and it, it wasn't easy. I, I I don't say that you know everything just um, everything was perfect. Things were were hard for for a long time, um, but I think we were coming back to that common mission and um, having a lot of patience, all of us, that we need to move forward. We need to move forward with this, and eventually, now seeing that the school is working to integrate that uh, process into their routine practice and connect systems around it. Yeah, you've um, you, you mentioned a, cu- a couple of times about, you know, when you've, you've entered into schools and you've found certain challenges. What are some of the things that have surprised you about that? You mean uh, surprised about challenges that they're dealing with or? Well, I guess about, um, so maybe what you, you weren't really expecting when you went into a school? I think for me, coming personally, coming from uh, a theoretical and experimental background, everything was surprising. (laughs) I think for me, uh, I mean, it might sound naive, but uh, it was a big um, change for me to get and to see how things are happening and how many problems exist at the same time that prevent a teacher to use a program or to support their students as they should. Um, And the most shocking of all is how little research is getting into schools uh, and how the, you know, that translation piece, it just breaks down somewhere in the middle and, Mm. and um, then schools are left on their own to, to figure this out. I think those, those general things that made me go into this type of work were always surprising for me. Uh, and uh, it changed from school district to school district. Every uh, And we, even within a school district, you had schools that had more infrastructure than other schools. So that was also, uh, you know, um, um, challenging because you wanted to make sure that you create quality uh, processes uh, for implementation. But you, uh, you also wanted to make sure that you understand what each context has and doesn't have to, to make that happen. Yeah, it's a really interesting point there. About, and I think it's, um, it's also really nice to hear people admit that they, you know, they were probably a little bit naive about entering into schools and, and um, what their expectations were. Because I, what I find is that because everyone has gone through some sort of school system, they all mm-hmm. believe that they know how um, schools operate. You know, everyone's got their opinion on what teachers should be doing and what schools should be doing. Um, but yes, it was really interesting to hear how when you actually entered into that that kind of school setting and and you were seeing how things were happening, that a lot of things were happening that you weren't really aware of or, um, you know, I guess the, the common challenges that teachers face, um, you probably weren't aware of as well. Right. So, you know, just looking at, you know, I like to, to try to give advice uh, for schools and, and leaders and teachers uh, a bit that's actionable, you know. So what sorts of things can school leaders do to support the implementation process? I think, um, you know, an important thing is think through what leadership is in this type of situations. And in general, when, you know, when you are a leader of a school district, I think, uh, you know, we want leaders that uh, enforce different processes and create systems of accountability. But we also want leaders that create spaces where people can actually come together and collaborate uh, and uh, make things happen because implementation is all about collaboration. It doesn't happen without teams. One person cannot just implement and say, we did it. <laughs> yeah. People need to come together. 
so it is on leaders because of uh, the, their position, the, the position that they have, it is on leaders to create those spaces and understand what their people are going through and uh, listening to them and being uncomfortable listening to them um, and uh, using that information to start improving small things that could eventually lead to big changes. Psychological safety is very important um, in, in different, you know, in all organizations. You need to create an, an environment where people are comfortable and they feel safe to come and share their concerns, to come and share negative feedback. And say, no, this will not work in my classroom for this reason and for this reason. We need something else. So we, you mm. need those spaces. You need to create spaces for collaboration. And not just having people collaborate, but training them to collaborate. I think we forget yeah. about that. Collaboration is you know, its own skill. Uh, so we need opportunities for people to collaborate. I did work in interprofessional collaboration, and we saw that those who receive more training in collaboration, they have better attitudes about collaboration, and they end up collaborating more. But it's a skill to acquire and cultivate. So we have to give those opportunities as we give opportunities for you know professional development around language and literacy and educational uh, practice, we have to dedicate time to learn to collaborate because it's not easy to bring people from different backgrounds, from different expertise and just have them in, in one room and ask them, now you need to collaborate to make this yeah. uh, happen. Um, transparency is very important. It's another thing that we need to think about. When we are developing an implementation process, everything has to be in the open. We have to not only involve people uh, in, the, in the decisions, but share progress with them. Create moments where we come back together as a team and look at our progress and think through it. And if there are problems that are coming up, how we can solve them. So everything has to be open for everyone to be involved. So people can feel valued. Teachers can feel valued in the process and they can own the process. If we're thinking about sustainability, that's what it is. It creates that infrastructure sustainability yeah so many great points again um one of the things i just want to touch on was that the collaboration part and how you know we do need to actually train teachers how to collaborate because right. uh, i think i think i read a study i think it was from uh helen timpoli about how we have so many micro collaborative um situations in schools you know all of these conversations but mm -hmm. hardly any of them actually go into any depth at all you know where we're actually talking about things that need to happen and then put them into action plans. They're all just really surface level conversations that don't really get anywhere. Um, yeah, so I 100% agree with you about having that actual training for everything. You know, it's it's like, this is how you do this, this is how you do that. And I know that in the um, implementation sciences, um, like uh, implementation agents that, that can be referred to and having those teams of people. Uh, oh, and facilitators. Yeah, facilitators and, and um, Dr. James Mannion, he talks about having a vertical slice teams. So having people from like different parts of the school. So like a principal, a middle mm -hmm. leader, a teacher or a beginning teacher and, and um, having them all working together. What, what sort of stuff have you seen around that, if anything? Well, yes, I, I mean, we, um, you know, we have this concept of implementation facilitation, implementation support, uh, and yeah. 
you know, when we're thinking about implementation, we have technical aspects and we have relational aspects. So technical yeah. are the things that we need to set into in the process to make implementation happen. But a big part of implementation is about relations. So, you know, starting to uh, understand where people are in their environments, what type of opportunities they have to come together, uh, what conflicts exist, how do people address power dynamics, and, uh, you know, if you, when we have a good picture of that, then creating uh, different opportunities to teach and train people to, uh, you know, go through uh, an idea, brainstorming, uh, share concerns in, in a structured way, uh, and really have, as I said, that space with psychological safety that allows yeah. people to engage in, in these complex ideas, such as uh, implementation. But again, I, you know, I want to also remind leaders that when we want to create opportunities for collaboration, we have to think about the context around that collaboration and what prevents it to happen. Because again, we go back to these issues of time and resources. So if we want people to collaborate more, they, they need you know, time to collaborate. They need opportunities to collaborate and not just mm. say, you know, it's your job to go and work with the speech language pathologist uh, and, and, and uh, to help the student. That, that doesn't really work. And mm. something that, you know, as researchers and uh, academics, we have to also think about the pre-programs, the pre-training is we need to teach our uh, students who go out how to collaborate. That training has to become part of their education, ed education so they go out with those skills. There are different aspects, again, you know, and that's the thing about implementation. Whatever you do, think about the broader context and how things are coming together to make something happen or not. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting points there. Um, in terms of you know actually making the, the changes happening, what are what are some kind of areas that you see um, coming up a lot where schools are making mistakes? Um. I think um, I think I would say those one-time things, one-time training, one-time thing that, or the you know yes, the one-time things that really uh, create those long-term effects that we will want them. So when you're training, don't train one time. Make uh, you know try to have more uh, you know differentiated types of training like coaching, consulting that could help that translation from what you were telling a teacher to the, to the classroom. Um, I've seen also uh, schools starting something and abandoning it eventually yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, because it might be, be taking time or something else came up that, uh, you know, made them decide that, okay, we're going to put this on the side and, and, and work on this. Um, and, and that creates a lot of uh, situations where, you know, programs are not fully implemented so you don't get to see their uh, long-term impact uh, in your in your setting so you know one advice I have not just for schools but also for researchers who want to engage in implementation work it takes time it's gonna take time so we have to be comfortable with that idea and just work through it um, and um, when it gets hard, um, you know, we have to seek help. I've seen also schools not doing that. Uh, 
and trying to solve their own uh, problems. But, you know, you're not expected to know everything. You're not expected to know everything in evidence-based practice. I mean, it's great if you do, but (laughs) a lot of people don't. Um, And you're not expected to know everything in implementation. So if you're dealing with a problem, seek help. There are people outside of your setting that will be willing to help you, uh, you know, create a better, a stronger plan. Uh, for implementation and sustainability. Um, and, I, and I've seen that, uh, you know, I think that for me, the best leaders are those who acknowledge their own limitations and they bring in people that have the things that they don't. Mm. I love that. Um, what about, you know, so let's just say, all right, we've, we've decided what we're going to do. Uh, this is the, the program or a bit of evidence that we're going to use to move forward. What sorts of things should we be considering to ensure sustainability? Data, uh, the data will be informing your sustainability efforts uh, because not only, you know, it allows you to quickly solve problems as they arise, if you have a very good data system, but also, uh, you know, as you're improving, you are improving for sustainability. But the other thing that we, uh, you know, aside from data, which is a big part in something that, you know, not robust in many cases, is planning for sustainability from the beginning. Um, One thing that's happening in implementation science framework is when frameworks are laid out, they go through stages. They start with the planning and exploration stage. Then there is a planning period and then implementation and sustainability shows up at the end. That doesn't mean that you need to think about sustainability at the end because it might be too late. So from the beginning, whatever you do, try to think what will happen in the future if this is not here? How we can ensure continuity of services if this is not here? And I'm thinking again about that funding. Funding is a big piece in the sustainability um, aspect of, of implementation. Uh, it's, it really is about resources and, and support that you can get and continuously have to, to uh, have something in your setting. So think about the funding aspect. Think about opportunities for continuous training of people. It wouldn't not just training someone now and that's it. Knowledge, again, changes every day. Every day you have new things coming out that will probably impact your practice. So think how we can ensure that continuous training. Um, you know, in my work, one point about training that I would like to make, um, training is very expensive. Uh, a lot of things are behind paywalls, like research articles. So people, teachers, speech language pathologists and administration have a difficult time accessing knowledge. So thinking through that is very important because that will um, uh, lead to more knowledge acquisition and more quality knowledge acquisition. So how can we access more quality materials that will inform our practice? That is very important. And, you know, this is a big problem that we have also in the research world that we need, you know, the paywalls that we have and the way that we write our research articles and that are not easily understandable by practitioners. There are a lot Mm -hmm. of things that need to change. But when we're just setting up an implementation plan, uh, plan, that knowledge aspect is very important. Um, And any other infrastructural thing that has to come into place, any system that you need to have to support the other things that are happening. So as I said, data collection systems, a lot of schools in my experience don't have data collection systems. They yeah. have seen data in, in paper uh, on, you know, on teachers' desks, and I've seen data in Excel spreadsheets that are not connected. 
in a way that will inform uh, decisions about our students. So you need systems in place to support the flow of, of information that will impact your teaching practice. A lot of infrastructural changes from the beginning, as we are working through those changes, thinking, will this be here in five years, in 10 years? And if not, how we can make this um, be here in 10 years and for the long run, so we can keep using it. Yeah, uh, you know, just going back to your original point there about how, you know, in terms of getting sustainability, that's kind of where you want to start with when you do start planning, you know, is like, what's our end goal? Where do we want to get to? Uh, and then almost like backwards map from there. Right, right. Look, looking at each of those steps that we might be taking, uh, you know, because I think one of one of the things with, um, you know, like you're talking about there with the training and the knowledge acquisition is that we might be able to get that initial um, teacher professional development right at the start, but then what does that look like for the next group coming through? You know, so right. next year, you know, new staff, um, how do we ensure that they're getting that same bit of information that the original group got while we're still mm -hmm. pushing um, the original group, uh, you know, to continue to develop? I think that can also be, uh, you know, a really tricky thing for schools to manage is, is having these different, um, you know, flows of, of groups going through learning and, yeah, how do you actually manage all of that? You know, what sort of advice would you have around that? Well, I think I think we have to, for every school, it's different because, uh, again, uh, uh, you know, different contexts, different infrastructure. I think we have to see where you are in terms of, especially when you're thinking about knowledge and training, where you are, what opportunities you have, what resources you have to bring in more training or to send your people to acquire training and uh, and bring that back into their classroom. So I think, uh, uh, you know, and almost creating an educational plan for every school based on what they already have. Uh, it's it's going to be the way to to do that. Um, but I think, you know, when we're thinking about the gap between research and practice, I'm also thinking about, you know, how we can create more opportunities for better collaboration between researcher and practitioners and some yeah. aspects of that collaboration to be those training opportunities, the knowledge translation. We need better, uh, better ways to do that. Um, we're getting there. I think people are now thinking through that because of the general frustration that research and the knowledge in research doesn't end up into practice. So how can we create those formal opportunities for more of that knowledge translation to be happening? I've seen things, you know, like in different foundations where you have programs where people, researchers and practitioners can apply together and work together to create that system of knowledge translation and uh, collaboration to, to make implementation happen. Um, so we also need a lot of that. We need those opportunities because where are you going to acquire knowledge from? You're going to acquire knowledge from those who do the research and uh, they, they have that knowledge, or you're going to acquire that knowledge from other practitioners who, you know, who it's their job to to train others to uh, and help them, you know, think through their own practices. Um, so you need to find ways um, to to create pathways to bring those people in and and not just a one-time thing but more of a collaborative ways is that we we are working together to um you know to create a system of uh of um training coaching consulting that will help us with our needs over time um i wish i had a a better answer but i don't because the barriers that 
prevent what happened are big. There are barriers related to uh, how institutionals are operating, how funding is uh, being distributed, uh, how knowledge is being accessed. Uh, so once, you know, we have to go back to those barriers and think through them, because if those barriers exist, whatever we do, we're going to end up hitting a wall, uh, especially yeah. when thinking about knowledge. Uh, as I said, a lot of our work stays behind paywalls. So how are we going? If a school district uh, says, okay, I'm going to give you this amount of time per month so you can read research articles or you can access this type of webinars um, or any type of training opportunities. Well, what happens when those research articles are behind paywalls and they're getting very expensive? What happens when the webinars are very expensive because there is a competition in the market? So, uh, you know, it, it can get, uh, it can really impact the budget that the school has. And we're thinking about schools who don't have that budget. But we have to create opportunities where we can provide high quality education and, and training at low cost. Uh, and create uh, those those systems in place. Uh, and uh, again, as I said, one way that can happen is through collaborations with researchers. If we incentivize researchers to engage in more of this practical work and implementation work, uh, I think that could be a, a great way to uh, leverage their knowledge and uh, help them uh, share that knowledge with with teachers. Yeah, you know, in, in Australia, we're, we're pretty lucky at the moment where we've got a bit of a groundswell of mm -hmm. educa educators and, and researchers um, collaborating and, uh, you know, presenting at conferences and uh, providing a lot of free webinars and, and things on YouTube. And uh, I think that the research to practice is, is quite accessible. But my only issue is, and, and, you know, we're starting to talk big picture now and, uh, you know, systemic change, probably my biggest kind of concern at the moment is more that all of these different conferences and everything it's more being left up to individual teachers to attend and so mm. it's almost like we're just preaching to the converted and right. yeah. you know how much of that information is actually spreading um, across you know to the other schools and teachers I'm, I'm not quite sure and and you know the way I'm looking at it is it's, it's kind of you know um, baby steps that we're taking and eventually you know we'll, we'll start to um, translate that that information into other schools, but yeah, I, I see that as as probably the biggest challenge at the moment. Not so much that the the research isn't accessible, but more that it's not being accessed by everyone. Right, because you don't have a requirement for that to happen, so you don't really have the structure uh, to say that you you know you know it is part of your responsibility to access this amount of hours. So of training, but then also thinking of the quality of the training that we are accessing. And I've seen that, you know, in the work that I uh, did uh, around the uh, interprovincial collaboration, I've seen that independent uh, learning that's been happening by some uh, teachers uh, and not others, and the differences that it will create to that knowledge translation piece. Um, and I, you know, I'm glad to hear that you have those systems in place. And I think we have a lot to learn from Australia uh, about things that we could change uh, in, in other places of the world. Um, but thinking through how we can create those um, um, opportunities uh, that are consistent across groups of people for accessing uh, things like training and knowledge but also coming back and thinking opportunities for sitting down as something like a learning collaborative and sharing and how 
the information that people bring bids into into the system. I think, you know, I've seen that also happening, going out, get, learning something. Then you go back. Would you? How would you share that with the wider system? Would you talk to yeah. one teacher? Would you talk to to a speech language pathologist? Or do you have opportunities to sit in a team meeting and say, "Hey, you know, I've attended this uh, this uh, webinar, and here are the things that came out, which I think could be very critical for our needs." And we think through how to implement those in our own setting. Yeah, you're right. We, we probably don't have those um, opportunities at the moment where there basically, you know, you go to these conferences or you, you learn whatever you're learning, but you're learning it in a, um, a silo, you know, you're learning it individually yeah. and you're not necessarily sharing it with the rest of the school or, or even any teachers at all. Um, right. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you brought that point up. What sorts of things um, excite you at the moment about, you know, the implementation science and, and what sorts of um, trends are we seeing? I think the, the one thing that really excites me is to talk about implementation science to more people. I think too, I, you know, now as, a, as an uh, independent uh, consultant, I, it is my mission to show the promise of implementation science to others and help them think through how they can take it and make it their own to solve some of their uh, complex problems. I think we are implementation science in general is a very is a relatively new field, um, and especially for education and, and speech language uh, pathology. So we have we have to get to those basics, the foundation of implementation science, where, uh, and we're starting now. So I I am excited to see more practitioners, more researchers to learn about it. Um, and to think how it can be uh, leveraged uh, for, uh, you know, pra for practical problems. Other things that excite me is um, uh, the, you know, work right now that focuses more on equity. You know, on its, found, uh, in, uh, on its foundation, implementation science is about equity. It's about creating those structures that will allow for quality program to reach uh, all people and not just uh, a select few. Um, so more explicit focus on equity uh, is happening right now and thinking through how equity is being, um, you know, visualized in, in, a, in a framework, how equity is in our uh, different tools and approaches that we use, um, how do we create the structures where we you know, bring people that were for a long time left out of, uh, of uh, decisions that will eventually impact their lives. Um, and alongside that equity, sustainability. So sustainability, thinking through what sustainability means for different settings, for different populations, how we can measure better sustainability. Uh, I think measurement in general implementation science is in a very exciting uh, uh, area because it's you know it's it's what drives everything. So we need good measures to uh, to know if we're implementing well and what are the problems that uh, we need to solve quickly. But, you know, in terms of sustainability, uh, thinking through more of those frameworks and approaches, uh, people are, are now doing that and helping us uh, understand what the long-term impact looks like. Um, and then the other thing that excites me is de-implementation. I don't know if you've heard mm -hmm. about that. So it's kind of the opposite yeah. of implementation. So taking out yeah. low-value uh, services or sometimes harmful uh, mm -hmm. services or programs. So 
how do we work with, through the system to remove those things that, uh, you know, not only they, they, they do, they could do harm to, to our students, but also they're not cost-effective uh, mm -hmm. and they're not equitable. Um, and the, the tricky thing is that when we're thinking about the implementation, uh, it's it's really happening very closely to implementation. So, you know, if you're going in a school district that's using the wrong program, so you have to think about removing that program and then you have to think about implementing uh, the program that they should be using. So it's a, a quite a complex process, but I'm excited to see more of that discussion and more of that work happening because it was about time, if you ask me. <laughs> we are so late. Uh, so we have to think about things that are, not working things about that are not um useful for our students i mean especially when we're talking about literacy programs uh yeah. let's let's think about how we remove those literacy programs that are not evidence-based from our schools uh and uh you know implement the ones that we should be using to support um language and reading development in our students yeah such a good point there and i, I see so many schools being affected by that sunk cost fallacy you know where they've mm -hmm. they put in so much money so much time and effort into certain programs and like you're talking about there that's why we still see these ineffective literacy practices because right. you know we, we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on these leveled readers um and so we continue we feel like we need to continue to use them uh even though the the, the evidence is is quite clear that there are more effective ways of, of teaching structured, structured literacy. Um, yeah, so de-implementation, uh, definitely a step. You know, where would you say that needs to fit in in that, in that sort of, um, it's almost a pre-planning phase, isn't it? Where you're, you're considering what's, what's currently happening, um, you know, where, what situation are we in and what sorts of questions do we need to be asking? Right, because when we you go into a setting and you're trying to understand what they're doing, you are going to see, uh, you know, that they are probably using it. And, I, and I've had that experience where we will go somewhere and they have a need, and then we will see that one of the programs that they're using is not uh, evidence-based, and we know that, you know, uh, it, it shouldn't be there, um, and it's not going to benefit students. So, but the tricky thing is that you cannot just say, we are going to remove this whole thing immediately and then yeah. implement this whole another thing immediately. So you have to really take your time because you're dealing with people. Change is it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to go and say to a teacher, stop doing this. You need to do this. That's not <laughs> how it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So you have to do it step by step uh, and really allow that time to unfold unfold because when you do that on the basis you're setting up strong processes that will eventually support the use of the right thing and its its maintenance in in that setting um so the implementation cannot happen overnight the implementation it's going to happen alongside implementation so as you are slowly removing something you're slowly adding something else uh so and you again the data here is very important because you have to create that structure so you can allow your teachers and your other staff member to see the data to see that okay we started here this was our uh, baseline and uh, you know these are uh, our data from other years being used uh, using this program and he look at where we are and hopefully we see a growth happening uh and we see not just the uh, you know the growth in outcomes but also we see satisfactions among our students which is very important how do our students feel in the programs, uh, you know, that uh, they, they are um, 
participating in. Uh, and we see different things. We see teacher satisfaction growing. Uh, so the data speaks. I, I do believe that data speaks and we have to uh, um, create those processes for data collection and evaluation so we can show that what you've been using was not helpful, but this is. Yeah, actually, I was just going to touch on that. Uh, you know, when it comes to data collection, besides looking at student outcomes, and, and you touched on a couple of things there about, you know, student satisfaction, um, teacher satisfaction, what other things can we be collecting? Well, you know, when we're thinking about implementation, we have a taxonomy of outcomes that we are targeting. So we have implementation outcomes, things like acceptability. So like that satisfaction that we're trying to achieve among our teachers and, and other staff members. Uh, we have things like feasibility. So how feasible is something? You know, if something is too complex to, to use, it's not going to be used. Uh, we are thinking about cost. Cost is very important. If you're going working with limited resources, is this cost effective? It might not be at the beginning, but eventually it, it could be cost effective. So think through that. Um, so those, you know, those are examples of implementation outcomes. Fidelity is another implementation outcome. Uh, and then we have service outcomes. So are the services that we provide student centers are they timely? Are they effective? Um, these are types of a service outcomes. And then, of course, we have student outcomes. So not just how well they're doing, their symptomatology and their function in the classroom and in their daily life. Functional outcomes is very important because you're not, you know, trying to increase a score in a standardized assessment. You're really trying to make sure that whatever you're providing translates in their daily life and helps them use those skills in their daily life. Um, and satisfaction, something that we always forget is that students uh, and their families are active participants in our implementation process. Uh, there have been studies where you know, you will, they would seek perspectives of students with uh, developmental language disorder, with dyslexia, yeah. and you will hear the stories and those stories have become part of the process. Uh, a student who is in uh, in the fourth grade uh, knows what's happening, you know, knows what, uh, not just about their, uh, you know, their difficulties, but also what's happening in the classroom and how they are responding or not. Um, so we have to ensure that they are also active. We see them as active participants and we involve them in the decisions that we're making. As we involve teachers and administrators, we involve students and family. Um, because eventually they, you know, they will be benefiting from this. It's if we're talking about their lives, uh, so we have to value also their, uh, you know, perspectives and and opinions to make sure something uh, works. So thinking through that taxonomy of outcomes and the way we measure these things is a mixture of quantitative measures like checklists uh, um, and uh, administrative data uh, and qualitative measures. So we want to do, you know, want to have opportunities for uh, things like interviews and focus group, where again, people are coming together and sharing their uh, their perspectives and whether they're satisfied by this, whether they've seen, you know, the changes that they were expecting, what things they have concerns about. Um, and again, bringing families in, in those conversations families have a say in, in all of the things that we do to support their children. It's uh, it's funny how you spoke about the students being active participants because it just reminded me of a story. Uh, earlier this year, I was out in play, doing playground duty and mm -hmm. a bunch of students were actually uh, making a poll on 
the current spelling program up against the, the spelling program that they had used last year. So they I were going, that. oh, I know. And, and I actually said to them, I'm really interested in this. Can you show me the end outcome? Because I'm writing an article and they were taking a poll. Um, yeah, so it, was, it just made me laugh. Um, yeah, when you were talking about that. I absolutely that love because, that. Yeah, it, it, you're 100% right. They, they need to be satisfied in, in order to, um, to engage with whatever this new program is. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how good it is. Um, they're not gonna. They're not gonna be actively thinking to absorb the new bit of information coming in. Right. And we, you know, traditionally, especially in research, we've seen students, we've seen families of passive participants. They're coming in. We're getting the data. We write about the data, and that's. But that's not what it is. Uh, they they know what's happening. They know strength their strengths and weaknesses. They know they have expectations. We forget about expectations, uh, and we're not asking about expectations. Uh, and um, those things are very important. They inform our, our the way we do things, the way we are implementing and sustaining an evidence based practice. Uh, they have to become part of, of our team. Uh, and the more we do that, the more we go towards that community ownership that we all strive for, because that's the end goal. Uh, it's about creating the system where people who are experts in their own lives own the things that benefit their life. So we have to work towards that even more and engage our students. Young students, even five years, I had so much joy with five-year-olds, you know, sharing their their uh, opinions and perspectives, they have a lot to say. Allow them <laughs> to say the thing. They have a lot to say. <laughs> yes, yeah, great point. Uh, look, couple, just a couple of other questions that um, I, I wanted to pick your brain on. Um, when we are delivering professional learning, how much should it be theory-based, and how much should it be, you know, action-based? And what what should teachers actually be doing and I know it's probably hard to put a, a quantifiable number on um, right. but it's just something that I've been thinking about lately yeah. you know as I'm as I'm providing this um, professional learning yeah I don't know if I you know I have a very concrete answer about that uh, I'm thinking from my experiences of professional development I think theory is very important I think you need to start with theory and and lay out the ground of what we know uh, about mechanisms of learning what's the evidence what that means for uh, for practice but I think we want a lot of time to focus on the actual translation because if you're in a room with teachers you also see them you know, getting very interested about theory, but immediately wanting to know, okay, so what this means for me? How can mm -hmm. I take this and, and apply it um, into my own classroom? So we have to take advantage of that fire that is happening to, uh, you know, to focus on, on uh, practical things because the practical things, I think it's going to take time. And, um, you know, not just, you know, talking about implications for assessment, intervention, instruction, but also creating opportunities where we have more of a coaching model in place. Uh, if we are implementing uh, a, you know, a new literacy program or an assessment program, how can we build some of those um, uh, models to help teachers uh, better use uh, whatever we want them to use in their, in their practice? We know from evidence that, um, uh, you know, in addition to training, training is great, but uh, as I said, training on, on its own doesn't really the uh, uh, the effects that we wanted to uh, we want something more involved more uh, you know hands-on more activity based more practical so coaching is something that uh, has been shown to 
to do that and, and create those, uh, you know, long-term learning uh, uh, that we want want to happen, you know, amongst teachers and, and uh, other uh, people in, in a school setting. Um, so theory is great. Start with theory because, you know, you probably, in your audience, you probably have people who know the theory, uh, but you also have people who don't. Uh, so you really want to make sure that we all start from the same place and we all have an understanding of why we're even talking about this. Why are we talking about, you know, explicit uh, phonics instruction? For, for students, why are we even, uh, you know, getting there? And then once we have a general understanding of uh, the big idea of the big why of, of, of what the research currently says about what we need to do, let's move on in actually doing it. Let's move on creating those spaces, uh, either through activities or going to the classroom and, and you know, creating those uh, one-to-one uh, coaching uh, opportunities, consultation, where teachers can slowly become more comfortable with using something and uh, making it their own. So I don't yeah. really have like a, you know, do a 50, 50% or <laughs> do a, a 30%, 70%, but I think it is important to start on the foundation and make yeah. sure that everyone is on the same page and then go from there. Yeah, no, it's a really good point that you make there because I think sometimes, you know, we can suffer from the curse of knowledge as, as a, um, a leader and you forget what our teachers do know or don't know mm-hmm. um, and so just having that shared language that you're using as well and right. and really get kind of getting to the the nuances of what it might look like um, and yeah that's kind of one of the things that I've been um, digging into lately is just making sure that that teachers they're not just um, hearing the theory side of it but then they're actually being able to see what it looks like in the classroom right. so whether it, that's me going in and modeling it or showing a video of, of someone else doing it right. um, and then what I've, I've kind of been working on lately is going through the actual like thought process so one of the things as teachers is that you're making so many decisions on the run um, and so yeah what I've been doing lately in coaching sessions is actually explain look this is why I've done this um, based on what I was seeing from the students, I made this decision, uh, you know, to check for understanding or whatever it was, um, right. because, yeah, I find that just helps as well in, in just uh, helping, especially, you know, novice teachers, just seeing, you know, the, the thought process that, that we can go through um, and while we might make those decisions that we do. Um, now... It's been a, a great conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you about all these things, but um, I am mindful of time, so I don't want to take up your whole day. I know, I'm sure you've got lots of things that you want to do today. Um, I but could it, say you're talking about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll have to get you on again. Um, but look, it's called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. And so one thing I like to ask uh, my guests is, you know, what bit of knowledge do you think more educators need to know about? You know, it, whether it's something that's, that's kind of been transformative for your own thinking or just based off your research or observations, you know, what's something that you think more teachers need to know about? I think from my own work, uh, especially around, uh, you know, language and literacy, uh, I think the profiles of the students and, and the reasons why we might be seeing, you know, uh, students behaving a certain way uh, and, um, you know, performing a certain way. I've worked with, uh, you know, schools around uh, uh, developmental languages and dyslexia. So, you know, if I had to share one thing is that more people know about dyslexia than they know about developmental language disorder. Um, 
But when we're thinking about reading, we're thinking about, you know, if, if I take the simple view of reading, we're thinking about word reading and we're thinking about language comprehension. So you have children who, you know, will struggle with word reading. You have children who struggle with language and you have children who struggle with both that eventually affects their reading uh, outcomes. So one thing that I would like teachers to know is, uh, you know, to think through the profiles of their students and where their weaknesses are coming from. But to do that, I think it is very important to have opportunities like assessment, like uh, um, uh, progress monitoring, uh, to uh, think, talking about implementation, those things that have to be placed to allow teachers to see their students, to really see their students, and not mm -hmm. wait until a certain grade level where, you know, you are might be surprised of why a student that you expected to perform a certain way they don't anymore uh so yeah. really prevent those um uh, as we you know uh, say in in education uh, there's a term that uh instructional casualties uh so really prevent those because you know the earlier we learn to see our students uh the better job we do to support their learning uh over time and i've seen that in my own work i've seen you know because and and again it's it's going back to the knowledge piece to that translation piece uh to what teachers hear about and they don't hear about and, and i've seen you know groups of teachers being comfortable with uh dyslexia but not really knowing you know children who might be good word readers but they don't really understand their oral language uh, and they mm. struggle with it um in, in their everyday life so thinking through the profiles of our students is very important and i am a big advocate of uh you know of developmental language disorder so if thank you for the opportunity to share see your children with developmental language disorder it is very important and the earlier you do uh the better job you will do to, to support them um but not just you a whole a team has to come together the whole system has to come together to make sure that every child receives the quality education that they deserve yeah really great point there and uh you, you're 100 right you know that De developmental de language disorder is probably an area that teachers don't have a lot of knowledge on and and I think like the the first problem is that a lot of teachers don't know how to teach reading properly um to right. you know whole class and right. then so looking at those um you know students that might need intervention just becomes even more of a challenge because we're not getting that tier one um teaching right in the first place so yeah it's a, it's a good point that you make and I think it's probably where we'll start to go um as as more teachers have an understanding of right. um you know the science of reading they'll start to um you know look into those student profiles and what sorts of things we need to be looking out for for students who do need intervention and if I may add to that uh you yeah. know uh, I've, I've heard a lot of cases of uh, you know, oh, this child is just lazy, or oh, this child is yeah. just, you know, not paying enough attention. Oh, this child that has a lot of going on, and that's why they're not performing as as we should. Is you know, mostly the especially the environmental factors could be true, but you know, uh, calling children lazy or inattentive just does a disservice to them, uh, and there is a reason why they're struggling. And uh, you know, I one thing that uh, I love is something that Dr. Tiffany Hogan says is that if there are children who try, who work hard, are these children who you know have dyslexia, children with developmental language, because they 
they really try to make this work uh, and yeah. despite their difficulties. So it is a disservice to them to label them certain things when there is an underlying uh, cause for the for their uh, difficulties. And once we understand what that is, then that should translate into how we uh, approach uh, instruction and intervention with them. Yeah, great point. So Rosanna, um, where should teachers look for in terms of um, wanting to know more about you and what you're doing, the work that you're doing, or how might they get in contact with you in the future? Um, so I am very active on social media. I also have a website for my uh, current business, uh, and it's called uh, um, the 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 website address is mosinian.com. So m o s i n i a n dot com, and uh, so either through that or uh, through social media, I would love to uh, uh, to connect with anyone uh, and. Uh, um, one thing that I would like to showcase is a resource, is an open access resource that um, Dr. Tiffany Hogan and I created for uh, educators. Uh, it's called the Generic Implementation uh, Toolkit for, um, um, for educators who want to explore implementation science resources and, and uh, concepts and measures. So we put together everything in an open access toolkit. Uh, to help others see, you know, frameworks that help them uh, evaluate their context and identify barriers and facilitators. Uh, how do we measure? What type of outcomes, as I mentioned, are we uh, looking for, you know, when we're working with through implementation and what are some potential measures that someone could use? Uh, we created that to, you know, increase the reach uh, and, uh, of, uh, of implementation science, but also provide opportunities for teams to work on things because a lot of the measures, you know, are not being validated in school settings. So this could provide an opportunity for some work to happen to accelerate the uh, the use of implementation in the education settings. So uh, that I think that could be a very useful uh, starting point for anyone who uh, you know who's uh, looking into learning more about what is involved in implementation. So what are some of the core concepts that we're thinking through? And a paper is coming out soon, but the toolkit is available uh, online uh, uh, for uh, its open access. Yeah. Yeah, and I've I've had a look at it, and it's it's uh, awesome, and 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 I'll, I'll put all of those links onto the show notes so that great. teachers can yeah, that's great. Yeah, that would be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. But look, uh, Rosanna, thank you so much for today. It's um, It's been really nice chatting to you and, and learning about the implementation science and what schools can uh, take out of it. So yeah, really look forward to, to seeing uh, your future work and, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rosanna as implementation science is a particular area of interest of mine. As I mentioned in the chat, I had been delivering PL that had a strong evidence base, but I wasn't seeing that automatically transfer to positive changes to teachers' practice. And so I started asking questions about why this was happening, and it led me down the path of looking at the implementation science. I see that having a deeper understanding on the whole process could help us be more effective in our decision-making and ensure that the right things are being implemented, the wrong things are being de-implemented, and good ideas are scalable and sustainable. Here are my key takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Rosanna Kamasidu. Some of the important factors that schools should consider before implementing something. First, we need to really understand the current situation. What are the needs and problems? What are the barriers? What good things are in place? Then we need to set up an implementation roadmap. What resources will we need? What training and professional development is required? 
Then we begin the implementation, but we need to allow for multiple cycles so that we can see what works, what doesn't, and improve as we go, and think long-term with an evaluation plan. Know what data you're going to collect and why. We need to ensure that everyone is on the same page and avoid top-down approaches. She also spoke about things that we need from leaders, and she mentioned things such as setting up systems of accountability, but also freeing up spaces where you can actually come together and collaborate. Train staff in how to collaborate. Psychological safety and making staff feel valued. Acknowledging their limitations and bringing in people to fill the gaps. The importance of avoiding one-off PD sessions. To ensure sustainability, we need to back, backwards map. We need to be thinking more about de-implementation. We also need to be thinking about our students and community as active participants in our projects and can even collect data such as on student satisfaction. Finally, we need to raise awareness of developmental language disorder. I feel thinking deeply about the implementation process is vital for schools and I urge you to do so before you implement something new in the future. Also, please keep messaging me and sending me emails. You can reach me at brendan at learnwithlee.net as I find the comments and feedback really useful. Things aren't slowing down over the next few episodes. I've got Karen Xanatopoulos, one of the authors of How Children Learn Math, The Science of Math Learning and Research and Practice. I'll also be speaking to Principal Manisha Gazula and finding out about the Marsden Way. And then Jared and Jordan from Shaping Minds to look at all things to do with professional learning, the science of learning, but with a particular focus on their new maths curriculum. So that's it from me for today. But as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.